While visiting in the home of a homebound member he had called on regularly, the pastor explained to her why he was leaving. The woman sighed deeply and lamented, We will never have another pastor as good as you've been. The young man blushed and said, Oh, I'm sure your next pastor will be great. The woman shook her head with determination and she said, You don't understand. I've been here through five pastors and each one's been worse than the one before. (laughs) Sometimes leadership is different than we think. Sometimes God throws us a curve. But how is our view of leadership influenced by the world, by the secular view of leadership? And are biblical and secular leadership completely the same? Those are the beginning questions for this morning, so let's pray. Lord God, open our hearts to what you want us to understand about leadership, about what you want us to apply about leadership. Lord, you, for every church, have a plan, and leaders are part of that plan the people that they lead that will follow them. And so we need to know, Lord, your heart for leadership. So when the next pastor is chosen to come to this place, Lord, we will pick that person that you want because we understand what your principles of biblical leadership are. So God, open our hearts, we pray today, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our second of eight traits that we've been talking about. We did passionate spirituality, which I consider the foundation for the remaining seven traits. But this one is called empowering leadership. If you want to take your outline out of your bulletin and you can follow along if you wish. There are many definitions about leadership. What is a leader? But ultimately, it's about influence. But my question this morning is influence... Toward what? You could say Adolf Hitler was a great leader, but he certainly isn't someone we would raise up and say, wow, what a great example of leadership. He's lots of of charisma, lots of motivation, lots of power, lots of of control and organization, and yet we don't hold him up as, as our example of leadership for what we want to follow. So how is biblical leadership different from secular leadership. It might have some overlap, but there are definitely some differences. And for Christ followers, I would suggest to you, the end goal is what is the most different. We are are going to influence people, but we are going to influence them toward a worthy and eternal end, aren't we? Some of the methods might be similar. Some might be completely different. We'll be looking at that. But the end goal the influence toward an end goal of something that is worthy and lasting. So how do we discern what's worthy and lasting? We would probably have different views if you say, what do you think is most worthy of a leadership and of a leader coming in next? We might have some overlap. We might have some differences. So how do we really know? And, and would our view of leadership, if we really stripped it down, be all that different from the world? How do we discern? what's worthy and eternal. 
what can we do but turn to Scripture and say, God, you show us. What are your key ideas? And so we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3 about what God thinks is worthy of influence. Paul, the apostle, had a radical starting point in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Now this, you might think that there's no mention of leadership in here, but I would suggest this is the foundational attitude. Paul says this, verse 7, I once thought all these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Verse 8, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage or rubbish so that I could gain Christ. Now, if you read that as a definition of the end goal of a, of a foundational attitude of a leader, people in the world would look at you and shake their head and go, you're crazy. You're out of touch. That, that isn't leadership. You know, that is bailing out. That's like taking the opiate drug of, of religion. But Philippians 3 has a different starting point than the world secular view. It operates with some methods that are quite different, and it has a different outcome, because I want you to notice Paul, if you read the rest of this chapter, he says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. He laid aside all of his agenda and how things ought to be and said, nothing matters more than to know Christ and his eternal values, his eternal lasting goals is what we are trying to reach for. It's the starting point for a leader. So let me ask you, what's your starting point as a leader? Now you may say, I'm not a leader, but in some way, small or large, you're a leader because you influence people around you. If you're a mom or a dad, you're a leader. If you have friends, there might be ways you influence your friends. You might have a leadership role at work, even if you're not the boss. We all have leadership roles that we fill. We may not be leaders with a big L, but we might be leaders in a little L, and we all have to ask ourselves, what is your starting point for leading someone else or influencing someone else? Is it to say what Paul said, that I count it all as rubbish and discard it so that I could gain Christ? So number one on your outline, empowering leaders focus on what is worthy. We begin with the point. We want to influence someone toward worthiness. And that worthiness has an eternal value to it. A young man, excuse me, a young man who had struggled with leadership mused this. I found this very challenging. Sometimes, he says, sometimes to do what is right, we have to give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams. That's partly what you do as a leader. You give up some of the things you want for the sake of others. And through my years of ministry, you know, I I have found as God has revealed things to me that I have done a lot of things and and I'm doing it to try to prove that I am worth something, that I'm a worthy person. And and God is saying, you know, you don't need to prove that. that. That clouds and distorts what you're doing, even if it is the right actions underneath He wanted to replace me trying to prove I'm worthwhile and valuable with his values. And so God came and said, you don't need to be insecure with your dreams. Let me replace them with healthy dreams 
with me as your focus. So leadership in God's plan begins with a relationship with him. Because if we're going to say we want something lasting and something valuable and worthy, then that's in Christ. It's in God who gives the value to everything in the world. And so relationship with him is our starting point as a leader. So you want to know what's one of the criteria, or in my mind, the number one criteria in choosing your next pastor is their relationship with God, their heart with God. And not just do they go through motions, but what is there a passion, like we said the last two weeks, for God? This is the starting point. It's a starting point for you also. So let me ask you this morning, what do you want most in your life? If you were to stop and think, I want this and this and this. These are the things I want most in life. Would you give them up if God said, I'm not going to take you in that path. I'm going to take you a different way. And you're not going to get some of those things or any of those things. Will you let go of your biggest dreams to find a bigger dream in God? You know, we've seen a lot of the negative outcomes of Leadership focused on, on things like success and power and prestige and wealth. These are driving priorities. And, and look around you in politics and sports and in all kinds of places in business. When someone's driven by those things, oftentimes the outcome isn't so great, is it? It might have success by the world's view, but it looks very different. And so... Our world needs godly leaders to show the way through the darkness, to say, here's something. Our world needs hope. We've needed hope all along, but it just seems so pressing now with the polarization in our society. We need godly leaders to influence the people around them and us. Go this way. Here's what's worthy and lasting. So is God your central priority? That's the foundation for being a leader. That's what set biblical leaders apart is that beginning focus with God as the priority, just like Paul had. How many of you remember the the TV show on NBC called The Apprentice? Like three or four of you remember that TV show, huh? There was somebody that might, you know, be notable in American politics that was the host of that show. Anyway, so back then, a guy named Bradford Cohen was a contestant on the reality TV show, The Apprentice. And Bradford turned down immunity so that, you know, he could show support and and solidarity with his team leader. And so he thought, this will be good and I will protect myself by being this good, supportive guy. But Bradford was mistaken He was told he had made a stupid mistake, and he heard those words that were famous on that show, you're fired. He was fired because he was overly considerate of others, rather than protecting his own interests, is what they said you should have done. Now, we think, okay, that's TV, right? We don't even need to look at TV for examples. A business school professor said the incident accurately reflects the highly competitive nature of the business world. He says, quote, the extent that you look out for yourself above all else, you will be rewarded. Organizations talk about teamwork, but few promote it. Instead, they promote the star. We inwardly react 
to that power-based attitude. But, you know, it's kind of part of our human nature, isn't it? It's kind of take care of number one. If you don't look out for yourself, who will? Have you heard those things? That's what we want to do. And sometimes, as Christians, I hate to say it, myself included, we're just more subtle about how we grab at that security and that power than, the, than we want to admit. And the world might be overt and say, you're fired, we find a different way. But Jesus had a different view of leadership. He had one that turned the world's view of leadership upside down, inverted it. We're in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. You might remember this story. The mother of Zebedee's sons, that's John and James, in case you don't recognize their last name. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and then the other one at the left hand in your kingdom. Now, the right and the left hand were symbolic of the two highest positions of power under the leader. So they're saying, Jesus, you're in charge of the kingdom, and then your prime minister is going to be John or James. You pick Jesus. Isn't that nice of me to let you pick which one of my sons? And then the other one gets to be, you know, the vice prime minister, the vice president. And so... John and James and mom are focused more on privilege and status and power in their views of leadership. They didn't realize the cross must precede the crown. You don't get the the crown until you go through the cross. And Jesus would say that. Can you drink the cup that I will drink? And sure, yeah, yeah. Well, you have no idea what you're agreeing to. To share the crown, they would have to share the cross. And they would. Verse 24 of chapter 20. When the ten, the other ten disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. First part of verse 26. Not so with you. You're going to be different than the world. The other disciples are indignant, they're offended, they're irritated, probably because John and James beat them to the punch, got there first to make that request, because they're all thinking about the kingdom. We're going to overthrow Rome, and and we're going to get rid of the oppression, and the kingdom that's been promised in the Old Testament is going to come right here on earth, and we are going to be part of it, and we need to kind of elbow our way up to the top of the other disciples. So they're indignant. But Jesus knows that the motivation in their hearts is all the same. Just because they weren't the first to ask doesn't mean that isn't their desire. But think about it. These are the future leaders. These are the guys who are going to launch the whole church movement, right? Christianity. And Jesus pours into these guys. These are going to be some of the main people that take it forward. And look at their attitude. They're just like us. They're just like the world. The world's just like now, it's just like it was then. It's all about power and status. And Jesus is saying, you have to have different motivations. You can't conform to all the cultural ideas around you. So how are these guys going to learn to use their influence for God rather than for themselves? That's the same question we all have to ask. How will you use your influence 
Are you influencing people to get stuff? Or maybe you influence people because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like, okay, I matter. Somebody responds to me, and that's not a bad thing. But if that's the main thing, where does God come into that? Where do we, like, reach for the glory of God instead of the glory of ourselves? Now, lord it over and exercise authority. Those are two terms that Jesus used. They, they mean together. They mean something like this, bringing under one's power. Gain mastery. Now, Jesus simply identifies this model as the world's model. He doesn't say, this is the most evil thing, you know, since the prosperity gospel. He didn't say that. What he's saying is, this is how it operates out there. Okay, that's a given. But here's how I want you to operate. In the spiritual realm, your goal is to find something worthy for God to influence. But now, also, how you go about doing it matters, too. Because you're going to empower others. It's like, you know, we say business or military or whatever operates with a pyramid. Okay, And you have to have that. Again, I don't think Jesus was criticizing the model. He's just saying it's there. And at the top is the CEO or the general or whatever... And then as you go down through the ranks, each person is at the bottom of the pyramid, and you're sort of, you know, if you're at the bottom of the pyramid, that means you're probably in the mail room or you're cleaning up after everybody else's messes, and then there's, you know, a foreman and then middle management, and it goes on up, okay? So this is the standard pyramid model. In Jesus, he takes that pyramid and he flips it up, upside down. So now all of these people are at the top, and you, the leader, are holding it up. And you are empowering all of those people above you. Now, by the way, there have been businesses who are trying this empowering, serving model, and it's working. Wow, who would have thought? And so Jesus is saying, this is what? Lording it over and exercising authority in God's kingdom is not how you're going to go about doing it. I'm going to do upside-down leadership where you empower Now, if you're in the secular world, it's common. You kind of push to get yourself promoted, promote yourself above others. Can't tell you how many stories I've heard about someone having an idea. They pitch it to their boss who then takes credit for it when it works. You get sick of hearing that kind of thing, right? But in this model, you're there to help this person succeed. You're not worrying about, well, what if I I gave that idea away? They'd promote that person over me. Jesus, but that's how it works. And another thing, we often, when we're up higher on the pyramid, we keep the people at the bottom of the pyramid at arm's length. You know, the boss goes by the big company and you're way down there, you're so terrified, you're not even sure how to to say your name. So there's a relational distance. In the military, the officers don't socialize with the non-coms, right? If you were in the military... That was one of the sort of things that happened. Maybe it didn't always happen, but it was common. So we regularly see this mystique of power on the TV. Okay, so when the TV pans on some important business leader or a president or whatever, you know, that's who we're focused on. But here's what Jesus is saying. Don't look at that person. I want you to look on the other side of the camera at the guy wearing the overalls who's helping it all happen, who has a towel and a basin, that's my leader. Not the guy who's on the camera. Not even the guy who's behind the seal of the President of the United States 
Mine are those who serve, who empower others. So, the unnoticed person, the servant. So Jesus is turning it all upside down. He's challenging the apostles' ideas. Verse 26 of Matthew 20. Instead, not so among you was first part of 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This contrast, I mean, this pulls against everything inside of our natural inclinations, doesn't it? We come to be served. We come, if I'm higher up, someone takes care of me. But Jesus uses two seemingly incompatible words in the same sentence. Servant and leader. If you're a leader, you're a servant. And that's just like, that just doesn't make sense to us. But that's what Jesus is saying has to drive you. And again, I'm not saying there can't be any hierarchy. I'm not saying that there, when somebody helps you and takes care of you that you're sinning or doing wrong. But the main motivation that you have of influencing others is to serve and empower them. External coercion doesn't really produce conformity, does it? When you say, you have to do this or else, here's the rules. I mean, if there were no speed limits, how many of us would be driving the speed limit? How many of you are thinking when you're driving, you know, past Safeway and all of that, why in the world does it have to be only 25 miles an hour? Even when the sign tells you, when you first start, to remind you what it is and that you're sinning. (laughs) We look around, we hope there's no policeman there. Or we're out on a desert, deserted road. You come to a stop sign. There's nobody there. You can see, you're in the Midwest, okay? Let's pretend you're in the Midwest. And you can see for miles. No one's there. Do you stop? We do it because we're afraid we're going to get caught. We do it because we conform to the rule. Even if it's there for our safety, and you can tell everybody that, and in driver's ed, show them all the bloody car wreck shots to try to scare them into driving safely. But we don't get conformity by coercion that lasts in the heart. An inner commitment that moves people to worship needs a different motivation than you better or, or, or else, right? And that's what Jesus is trying to release. The people will follow you and follow God because it comes from your heart. It isn't just because you have to. Spiritual leaders seek a relational Connection, not a relational distance with those they're called to serve. And they do it from an attitude of humility because they know the most important thing, the most worthy thing, the most lasting thing is directing people toward God. The secular ruler leads by command. The spiritual leader will rule by example on the kingdom way of life. By serving the Christian leader now, imparts the love of God so that person can impart it to another person. That's what God has in mind. And the ultimate example was Jesus, of course. Love and servanthood that were coupled with sacrifice. And someone asks me, you know, when they're reading Ephesians 5 about the husband as the head of the house, what does that mean? I say two big words, servant and sacrifice. 
when I did a seminar with Karen in a church that had two-thirds military, someone said, well, I want to know who's in charge in the home. Servant and sacrifice. It's the wrong question. How are you going to serve, guys? How are you going to sacrifice, guys? Because didn't Jesus just say this in his model of leadership? And, and if it's good for the world in the situation of the church, isn't it good in the home? Jesus is the ultimate example at every right to expect to be served because he's God. But he didn't. He did the reverse. He came and served us and died and suffered in that dying. And he gave himself as a sacrifice to ransom us from, from the death grip of sin. He said, did not come to be served, verse 26. Give his life as a ransom for sin, for death's grip. So to be great is to be a servant. To be first is to be a servant. Peter restated the same principle to fellow elders in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So the motive of leadership is to release others into their God calling with that example. It's not to get others to do what you want, fulfill your agenda, to make you feel good, look good, or whatever. Even sometimes to accomplish a task the easiest, quickest, most efficient, right way. Sometimes the relationship matters more than doing it right in the right way, the efficient way. So my life is an example. I hold my ambitions, my plans loosely because God might have a different idea in mind, right? So if you're a, we're done with the bas- NBA basketball, the pro basketball, so there was a, a man who played last decade named David Robinson. Maybe some of you remember him. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. Oh, I forgot the point, sorry. Number two point in your outline, empowering leaders. You use authority to serve others. That's your, that's your main point. So you are, are reaching for something worthy, and you're empowering others and doing that. Those are your, your one-two of this morning. Okay, back to David Robinson. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. He retired from basketball and was inducted into the Hall of Fame all the way back 10 years ago in 2009. He had won an Olympic gold medal in his career, once scored 71 points in an NBA game. But he's a modest man. Hard to do when you're over 7 feet tall. A committed Christian. So what would David Robinson do in his Retirement, when he was done. All these championships, all this success. And since retirement, David Robinson's greatest accomplishments have been off the court. He used his money and influence all around the city of San Antonio. He donated over $9 million to start a faith-based private school for kids from the inner city, most of whom are Hispanic and some African Americans. And... He didn't just start the school and then go off and retire on his big estate. He visits and gets involved in the lives of these kids on a regular basis. So he comes around. He takes personal interest. And I love this quote. The former Spurs coach, Greg Popovich, said this, that he didn't expect David Robinson to seek a job in the front office of the Spurs. 
quote, he's got much more sense than to stay involved in basketball. He has interests that actually make an impact on the world and have value. I wouldn't demean him by approaching him with a job offer. I think he's way too committed to do something as silly as basketball the rest of his life. David Robinson, not NBA star, not Hall of Famer, not Olympic gold medal owner. David Robinson, man with influence toward God. So what methods of leadership do you use to influence those around you? Do you rely on your position? Then sometimes you have to. That's not automatically wrong. Your father, a mother, you have a position, a boss at work, a rank in your organization. But is that the main thing you rely on to influence people is your title, your position, getting coercion? Do you use external methods of influence like commanding, critiquing, nagging, shunning, threatening, verbally or non-verbally? So what methods of influence do you use? Because those I just named, they're not in the wheelhouse of the spiritual leader to just give someone the silent treatment until you get them to do what you want. Or do you choose the powerful role of servant, releasing others into their God calling, even sacrificing your own desires, your own agenda? I'll close with this story about mountain climbing in North Carolina. Ten beginners were learning. And here's what the leader described himself. He said, I served as a belayer who controls the safety rope for the person climbing the mountain. So my job is to take up the slack as each person climbed up and then to hold on to that rope, hold on tight, if he or she should fall on the way. He said, it was very hard work. And one of the climbers was somewhat heavy and slipped several times. I was able to break each fall, but it caused me great pain. The belaying rope cut into my waist with the tension of her weight on it. The whole procedure became for me a parable of the ministry of a servant leader. Now imagine this. You are on there. You're holding on and all that weight of that person when they fall is is around you and in your hands. And this is what you're doing. You're holding them up. But he goes on to say, I was there to support her. I was tied to her, but she had to do the climbing. It would have been a lot easier to grab the rope and just pull her up. But I realized that if I pulled her over the difficult part each time, she would have missed learning what it means to climb the mountain. There are other mountains she will have to climb, and I will not always be there to pull her over the rough spots. She has to do it on her own. After much pain and struggle for both, she made it to the top. And it was a great moment for each of us. I had done the job of belaying for her, and I had encouraged her and kept her from getting hurt. But she was the one who had climbed the mountain. So are you willing to be a spiritual belayer? Are you willing to hold the rope for another person? Again, I'm not talking about you have to be the top of your organization or school or whatever that you are influencing people around you in even what you think are the most small ways, but they may be a lot bigger than you'll ever know. Are you willing to be a spiritual belayer? That's the picture of empowering leadership. Are you willing to influence 
and use the authority that God has given you to release others into their God calling, to help them draw near to God, see what God's vision for them in, and, and release them into that. Are you willing to be a servant leader, even when it brings you some pain, even when it's not easy, even when that person might snap back at you and get frustrated? Are you willing to be that belayer and take the pain to influence others for Christ? Because that's our calling. That's what we're called to be, is people out there to influence others. Let's pray. Lord God, this is hard to give up our own dreams, to give up protecting ourselves, to empower others, to let them have the success and credit, to not do the things that make ourselves feel like we're worthwhile and worthy, but just to release you into others' hearts. Those are what leadership is the foundation for it. Help us, Lord, to apply that foundation in the big and small ways. And Lord, we'll talk some more next week about being a leader. And so I pray that each of us here can look this week at the opportunities around us that you bring across our path to be an influencer, to be a biblical leader, to help people see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.